You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. You know, you see him on TV, you're like, how did this guy ever win? And then you're in a room with him. You're like, I will kill my neighbor. <laughs> like, and he was just that kind of guy. And he got people excited about basketball in Louisiana, which was, you know, big doings. These are the tales of college basketball past as you've never heard them before. Our guests tell stories blending team seasons, on and off court moments, memories of personal fandom, catastrophe, and elation, and yes, alcohol. I'm Jeremy. I'm Matt. And I'm Pat. We do the work, you tell the story. These are the college basketball stories. Hi, I'm Stephen Baker. I write under the name Poser for AndTheValleyShook.com, and I'm here to tell you the story of the 1989-90 LSU Tigers basketball team. Yeah, I almost got that out. I've been already drinking, because you have to when talking about the 89-90 Tigers. We're going old school and drinking hard liquor. Mm. What are you drinking over there? Same thing? I'm drinking a tank and tonic. So it's a summer drink. You got to be light and refreshing in the summer. Uh, the whiskey's a little bit too heavy. State of the program, uh, prior to Dale Brown arriving, LSU was one of the worst basketball programs in the country. Uh, they had two brief periods of being good. Uh, Bob Pettit is uh, probably the second best player in 1950s NBA, um, other than Bill Russell. Um, oh, yeah, and that Will Chamberlain guy. But – Bob Pettit was the only other guy to win a scoring title, and he beat Bill Russell head-to-head uh, -head in the NBA Finals. So he was pretty good. You don't remember him. It was in black and white. But he was at LSU for like four years, and LSU was briefly good. And they went back to being terrible. Then Pete Maravich arrived in the 70s. And Pete Maravich, well, actually the 60s. And Pete Maravich uh, scored a bunch of points. He still holds the all-time scoring record. He's the most prolific scorer as a sophomore, a junior, and a senior. And he did it all as a guard without a three-point line. Um, but when Maravich left, LSU turned back into a pumpkin and went back to the dregs of the SEC. And in the mid-'70s, they finally 
hired Dale Brown to get the program out of the doldrums. And he did the most obvious thing to get the team better. He integrated the basketball team, which LSU had prior refused to do until the 70s. So an all-white basketball team in the 1970s was getting its ass kicked by just about everybody for fairly obvious reasons. Um, it took a while, but by 1981, LSU was a great program and was the rival of Kentucky, which is how LSU has always viewed itself, even if that's not entirely true. And LSU was top five team. Rudy Macklin was an All-American. Uh, LSU went to the Final Four as, I think, a two seed. I, they were a legitimately great team. Fell short. Uh, that Ralph Sampson guy at Virginia got the better of LSU, and they went home. Losers, but still a Final Four team. And Dale Brown had shown he had built a program. And LSU kept winning even after Rudy Macklin left. And But they weren't as good. They were just kind of like a mid-tier. You know, they show up in the tourney every once in a team, every once in a while. And you get to 86. And 1986 is sort of this dream season where everything goes wrong at first. The team had chicken pox. Um, they couldn't play for like two weeks during the season. So they had to play like a bunch of games down the stretch in a very narrow window. They somehow sneak into the tournament as 11 seed and they become the first 11 seed to make the final four. Um, not a very talented team, but they were all heart. And that's kind of Dale Brown to a T like he doesn't need the best players. He needs the guys who will play hard for him. And so LSU was kind of back on this high, even though they didn't quite have great players anymore. And then in 1988, kind of tying everything together, Pete Maravich dies in January of a sudden heart attack, which kind of reminds everyone of this great era back in the 70s, or, you know, early 70s, late 60s. And then just two months later, Don Redden, one of the stars of the 1986 team, dies of a heart attack. Um, shockingly young, he was only 24. Um, guy that young shouldn't die of a heart attack. He had had cardiograms. He had even tried out for the NBA. It was missed by all the tests. And as the articles of the time said, he was just unlucky. And so LSU, there was kind of this pall on the program at the time. 1988 is kind of a low point for a program that had bounced back. You know, it's now dealing with death. But also with Maravich, they're being reminded of what they once were. And so in 19, the 88-89 team, a young freshman steps on the campus uh, probably the greatest freshman in the history of LSU basketball. And I am, of course, talking about Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who would <laughs> then go on to break the freshman scoring record, scoring over 30 points a game, a record which still stands, which means an LSU player holds the record for the all-time freshman record, the all-time sophomore record, the all-time junior record, the all-time senior record, and an entire career scoring record. And it's only held by two people, Maravich and Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. So all of a sudden, this team is just thinking, we have the second coming. Like, you know, we're back. You know, we have the second coming of Maravich. And then added to that, somehow Dale Brown adds the number one prospect in the nation, a center from San Antonio by way of his army dad in Germany, a gangly freshman, seven foot five named Shaquille O'Neal. And at this point, sky's the limit because you have a guy just set the freshman scoring record. You're adding Shaq, 
Stanley Roberts was a parade uh, high school All-American and actually started at center ahead of Shaq, but couldn't play as his freshman year because of grades. So he was coming in as a sophomore to play. Uh, you had guys considered like the greatest dunker in the history of the program, Vernell Singleton, uh, still remembered as Snoopy because he wore a Snoopy Band-Aid over one of his eyes. Just a one of those program guys that <laughs> fans of the program remember, but no one else does. I, I love Snoopy. And then you also had Mo Williamson. You had a good point guard on that team. The problem is everyone that I just mentioned was a sophomore or a freshman. And this is back in the day when freshmen didn't play, really play that much. And seniors played all four years. Guys did not leave for the NBA early unless they were Michael Jordan. And it really looked like this LSU team was immensely talented, but was incredibly, incredibly young. And the knock on Dale Brown had always been, he can motivate, but can he coach? And that's kind of the story of the 89-90 season. <laughs> that's your that's intro. it. We're done. Yeah, we're done. We can go home now. Uh, <laughs> Is there background to the Snoopy Band-Aid? I don't know. I, um, I don't know why he wore the Snoopy Band-Aid. I think he got cut in practice one day, but then he just wore it. I think he wore it throughout all the college. And But – he would throw down these monster dunks. Uh, the guy had just incredible hops. Um, I mean, I think he only scored like 10 points a game. I mean, we're not talking about an all-time star, but God, Vernell Singleton was just a fun, fun player. Um, I guess his closest comp would be like an Arkansas Moncrief, another guy who just dunked like a monster, but, you know, not an all-timer. Just, But he was doing the cover of Sports Illustrated for Duncan, so that's kind of cool. Um, also going on outside of the basketball program is the football program is starting to get bad. And LSU has always been a football school first and foremost. Um, but Dale Brown and Bill Arnsmarn are the head football coach from 84 to 86 hated each other's guts. Cannot stress this enough. Hated each other. Like clue, you know, flames shooting out of my eyeballs kind of hate. <laughs> and eventually, uh, Bill Arnsparger blamed Dale Brown for NCAA investigators essentially plopping down and setting up office literally in the athletic director's office. And he bolted the he bolted the Florida and blamed Dale Brown for everything. Uh, Dale Brown, I'm not saying he got Bill Arnsparger fired, but I mean, Bill Arnsparger did quit, but he got Bill Arnsparger fired. Um after Arnsparger, Mike Archer becomes LSU's head football coach, and the program takes a sudden turn downward. And by 1990, um, Mike Archer was in his final season, and LSU is beginning six consecutive losing football seasons. So a program which had not really cared about basketball for most of its history because it had a really good football team now has a terrible football team. And so – Tiger Nation turns its lonely eyes to Dale Brown. And so the hype for this team is off the charts because LSU is not used to paying attention to its basketball team. And they're hinging everything on this team. And to give you an idea of how quickly this things fell, in 1986, LSU became the first program to have a team in the Final Four, a January 1st Bowl, the Orange Bowl, and the College World Series in the same year. So things were clicking. Um, by 1990, football's starting to go downhill. 
Baseball's still great because you're going to have Skip Bertman. And they're not quite at the level they were at 86 in basketball. They're still making tournaments, but they're not, they're not winning the SEC. So the fact that you have this team with Rauf, O'Neal, Stanley Roberts is truly exciting because you're thinking, oh, my God, you know, we could win this thing. And that's not something that LSU fans are used to thinking about basketball. Do you want to tell us the story of Abdul Rauf changing his name um, yeah. now as this kind of intro because – Action was known as, as yeah. He, he was he had a great college nickname. Uh, Chris Action Jackson is just one of the all-time great nicknames. And I'm trying to be respectful to Mahmoud Abdul Rauf because he changed his name. And I think you should be called by the name you want to get called. So if I slip up and call him CJ, the other name that he went by a lot, that's just because I remember him as Chris Jackson. Um, but what happened is he was a um, he was kind of a quiet kid. Uh, around campus. I don't want to say awkward, but he wasn't like you all know Shaq and Shaq is one of the most outgoing human beings on the planet. Um, CJ was much more kind of an internal guy. Um, And Dale Brown was famous for trying to motivate people. Um, Like one of his greatest things is he took the team to the rim of an active volcano before uh, the Hawaii tournament and they went off and won the Maui Invitational because they were so inspired <laughs> by seeing, you know, the majesty of, you know, God's creation. Um, he gave Chris Jackson a copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And three years later, he converted to Islam and changed his name to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. So his conversion to Islam began with Dale Brown. And <laughs> that's Dale, I mean, that is the most Dale Brown story you can have other than the volcano. That's just perfect for Dale Brown. But he was interested in these guys as people. And, I mean, that was the other thing with Shaq. Shaq, his dad was an Army guy. And only Dale Brown could discover a Texas basketball player in Germany uh, when he's at LSU. And he promised his dad that he would, you know, he would care about his academics and would force him to go to class. And he became a father figure to Shaq when he was at school, not just at basketball, but in life. And he kind of just learned, hey, this is how far I can push him. This is how far. And if Dale Brown had one great skill, it was motivation. But he also knew you don't motivate everybody the same way. So the buttons he pushed with Rauf were different than the ones he pushed with Shaq, which were different than the ones that he pushed with Stanley Roberts, because Stanley Roberts had to sit out his first year because he was academically ineligible. So all of a sudden, Stanley Roberts, who is also a seven-footer, thinks, you know, he's going to be the man. And then all of a sudden, they bring in another seven-footer in Shaq to take his job. And apparently, the practices were worse than the games. And Shaq and Stanley Roberts would get in fistfights during practices. And Dale Brown would let it go because he wanted, A, he wanted Stanley Roberts angry because Roberts played better tough but also he wanted to tough toughen Shaq up um because Shaq at that time is not the Shaq that you're thinking of you know this big 350 pound guy who can't move and Shaq was fast I mean he was still I mean he was tall but he was lanky he ran around he wore those ridiculous knee pads at the time he was all elbows and knees (laughs) at that point you know his footwork was really bad and 
you know, he just didn't know where to position himself. He was still learning how – he was literally learning how to play. He had never had, like, full instruction on how to play basketball. He was skinny. Uh, he hadn't put on that weight. He was kind of like an awkward ostrich. You know, he didn't know his footwork. And so he got pushed around a lot early in his career. So Stanley Roberts is the guy who made Shaq get good quickly. I, I think without Stanley Roberts, Shaq's development time takes an extra – you know, one or two years, but it also meant that once the hack shack starts, you know, one or two years later, he was having none of it because he was used, he had been beaten up by the best of them. He wasn't going to be beaten up by some low level punk on Vanderbilt. He, you know, he was, he needed a higher class of villain to take him down. And that's what Stanley Roberts was. So Stan, Stanley Roberts uh, early became the volcano and Shaq had yet to erupt. Yeah. That, that is definitely a God's majesty. And, and also, like, early in that season, Stanley Roberts is the better player. Like, Shaq has all the skill in the world. And apparently when he came in, Dale Brown takes him into his office and says, you know, do you know how good you can be? And uh, Shaq, who at that time still had a stutter, was like, uh, um, I, 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 I don't know. And he's like, you can't even imagine how great you can be. And it was kind of this thing that he – he put in Shaq's mind that he was the best player on earth and he wasn't as a freshman. Like that, that just, he wasn't there yet. He didn't have any of those skills that you need. He just didn't have any technique. I mean, he was big and he was fast and he could block shots, but he had no scoring touch. You know, he never learned how to shoot a free throw. Um, but Roberts had range. Like Roberts was a big, tough guy, but he could hit, you know, a 10 or 15 footer. So he was kind of a more dynamic player. So, First off, Shaq didn't start. You know, when this season starts, Shaq's coming off the bench. I mean, he's a team of all freshmen and sophomores, one of the greatest centers in the history of the game. And he's like, yeah, you chill out here for a little bit. You got to learn something. And by the end of the season, Shaq was clearly starting. You know, it didn't take long for him to get into the into the rotation. I thought when, uh, when Shaq was, you know, sitting in the office – that Dale Brown was going to say, you could be the best German goalkeeper of all time. Totally could. Uh, yeah, because uh, uh, when he was in Germany, you know, the Germans thought, hey, well, he's a really big guy. He can cover the goal. He can be a goalkeeper. And honestly, he asked, you know, Dale Brown about playing soccer instead. Like, Dale was like, no, you're not, you're not going to do that. That's, that's just crazy. But, I mean, he started recruiting Shaq. I mean, it was a chance encounter. I think that he met, when, met him when he was like 13 or something like that. So he always had the end on this guy. And – when he first met him, Shaq had never really played basketball before. I mean, he did before he got to LSU. He, you know, he moved to Texas. He was, you know, all state. He was you know, an all everything player. But he was still a very, I mean, we're talking a diamond in the rough right now. He has not become the uncut gem, even that he would come as become as a sophomore and junior. At this point, there is no question Raouf is the best player on the team. I mean, he is the reigning scoring champion and he can score from anywhere. Uh, I mean, if you watch highlights from that time, it's basically the Chris Jackson show. I, I mean, he he had one of the sweetest, smoothest strokes you could see. I mean, I think he shot like, you know, 90, 95% for the free throw line. He's, you know, over 50% from the field. I mean, he's just a guy who's used to scoring nonstop, which is also a problem playing with these two big guys on the inside because now he has to feed the beast and he's not used to doing that. I mean, Raouf has learned how to be a scorer 
Like his whole career up until this point has been, you're the man, run around, hit baskets. It's all about you. And now he's got these two guys on the inside who are monsters. And it's awesome. It's like, hey, you can run around. You're still the star. But you got to pass it to these guys a little bit. And they never quite figured out how to do that. And I think when you looked at the team on paper, everyone's like right away. You're like, great center, another great center, great shooting guard, pretty good point guard to run things, and a fabulous dunker, you know, in Vernell Singleton. You're like, this team's going to just gel automatically. They're going to be great. And there was always just kind of this weird chemistry that every basketball team has, that it never quite became greater than the sum of its parts. It was always the parts, a great parts. So they got really far, but in a way it's kind of like karmic payback for 1986 because 1986 team on paper is terrible. I mean, he's running the freak defense and he's playing a 6-5 guy as his center in the tournament, and it's working. You know, he's playing a guard to cover centers, and all he does is box out the entire time, and it works, and they get to the Final Four, and they beat, you know, Memphis State. You know, they beat Kentucky. You know, they beat all these great teams. It kind of comes back in 1990 where you're the great team and you end up, well, we'll get to there but you're going to end up losing in an upset in the tournament. They're the number two team in the country. Cause once again, you look at the, these parts, I mean, Rolf was an all American as a freshman. So he's already preseason all American as a sophomore. Shaq is preseason freshman of the year, you know, which, you know, he's going to live up to that hype. Um, this team is considered just a great team on paper. And it's really easy to rank them highly. So LSU gets all that hype. And also, they're, you know, everyone's kind of looking for a new team to hype. So LSU comes in the season as the number two team. They're – and also, once again, you know, you go back to before, they had this reputation of kind of being a team that wins tournaments because Dale Brown is just a great motivator. And they go out to the preseason NIT, and they lose to a fairly mediocre Kansas team. I mean, this is – yeah, they're three years removed from the title. Oh, actually, a year removed because uh, Danny Manning and the Miracles. But A, let Miracle be your guide. And Danny Manning was no longer on the team. And uh, um, I don't want to say it was a huge disappointment because LSU, I think, still stays in the top 10 until the calendar flips. But it was just like they never got rolling. You know, you know, early on, you know, you beat all those tomato cans in front of you. But you lose to Kansas, and your only big out-of-conference win is over Texas. And Texas is a good basketball program, but, I mean, it you don't write songs about beating Texas in basketball. And <laughs> so they, you know, by the time the calendar flips and they get to, you know, 1990, you play your first game in the SEC, you're hyped up. You know, you're the preseason favorite to win the SEC. You're going to roll through everything and you promptly drop a game to Mississippi State. And I don't even know how that happens. Like, and, and what it is is that this team just doesn't know how to play with each other yet. You know, they – they even, what is it, the eighth or ninth game of the season, they still haven't quite figured out. They're good, but they're not great. And that's kind of – the knock on Dale Brown has always been that he doesn't know how to coach. 
He can motivate, but he can't coach. And so the boo birds are starting to come out. They're like, ha, 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 this is what we always told you. This guy knows how to promote a program. You know, he knows how to give out free tickets and basketballs and, you know, sell stuff to kids. But he can't outcoach somebody and he can't win in the rigors of the league. And he's going to blow this talent. On the flip side, everyone at the same time, like, hey, we got a long time with this team. You know, everyone's either a freshman or sophomore. You, you know, your, your best player, Rauf, is a sophomore. Stanley Roberts is a sophomore. Singleton's a sophomore. Shaq is a freshman. Mel Williams is a freshman. Your entire starting five is an underclassman in a day when everyone stays four years. You're like, you know what? Even if we don't get it done in 1990, this team's going to compete in 91 and 92. So let's not panic. And so I don't think there was a feeling that this program was running up against the clock. It was like, hey, they'll figure it out. They got time. And it turned out that this team did not have time. And I think that's the great tragedy of, this t- of the 89-90 team, that they never – they were running up against the clock and they never knew it. And that's when we start getting the SEC play. And they kind of do figure it out. They they go on their run. You know, I think they win – what is it, their next, you know, five games. So all of a sudden, you know, it looks like things are working. And, you know, and that's where we get into the – you know, they – they beat Notre Dame in the Superdome. I mean, Notre Dame wasn't Notre Dame anymore. Digger Phelps had been gone for a while, but or was he still there in 1990? I think Digger Phelps had. I think gone. Yeah, we're kind of at the. But I mean, they're not Notre Dame anymore. Not in basketball. And they pound them. I mean, it's a 20 point game. It's on national TV. I mean, they're this team's coming together, and you can see it, and. So everyone's kind of getting excited and stuff. And then they play their first ranked team of the season um, against Alabama. Wimp Sanderson, who is one of the more underrated coaches in uh, college history. You don't remember him. Uh, he always wore plaid. He was a fun coach. And Sanderson just basically outcoaches Dale Brown and pulls off an upset. I mean, Alabama wasn't a great team that year, but they would end up, uh, I think, finishing second in the SEC. But it kind of shows that LSU wasn't there yet. They, they couldn't beat a top 25 team right off the bat. So no biggie. You're, you know, you're, you're okay. The next game they play Georgia. And this is kind of um, a Mahmoud Abdul-Rawuf masterpiece. He scores 45 points. I mean, he's unconscious. It's one of his great games in a Tiger uniform. He, he, he scores from everywhere. I mean, he's – I think it's the game he hits 10 three-pointers. You know, he's bombing away. The problem is he gets no help. A Shaq still not Shaq yet. You know, Stanley Roberts has a bad game, doesn't really get anything help on the inside. And honestly, in one of the saddest parts of the game, the last three points is an uncontested three-pointer as time expires to close an insurmountable gap to two because they were losing by five. So he gets 45 points, but the last three don't matter. And now and they lose to Georgia. So now they've lost to two of the best teams in the SEC, Alabama and Georgia. They're kind of all of a sudden sitting middle of the pack. You've seen potential, but it still hasn't come together yet. And that's kind of the situation you're sitting at midseason. So the germ of greatness is there, but they're a mid-tier top 25 program at this point. 
I just noticed this, but they play Florida and UNLV on back-to-back days. Oh, the UNLV games were on Super Bowl Sunday. But they played Florida Saturday. God, did they? God, that's so Dale. Like, just, you know, anything for a hype, you know, hype match, but hype matchup. Um, did they play Loyola Marymount the next week? Yeah, next Saturday. Next Saturday, they'll play Loyola Marymount. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they rebound with the win over Florida. They play them on a Saturday. Florida's terrible. You beat them. Yeah, they play back to back days. That's really weird. Sunday is kind of a made for TV game. It is, you're playing UNLV, one of the all time great programs. They hadn't won a title yet, but, you know, Tark the Shark is, he's got his team going. This is the Larry, you know, Larry Johnson, Stacey Augman team. Um, they would beat Duke in the national championship game by 30 points. I mean, this UNLV team is awesome. Um, and it's kind of a construct to play it on Super Bowl Sunday to hype it up, you know. And uh, if you watch it, you can still see highlights on YouTube. The announcers for the game are Keith Jackson and Dick Vitale. So highly recommend it if you can find it on uh, YouTube. And basically, I think this is where they truly finds the team, where he says, you know what? We're just going to run with them. Because that's what UNLV did. The running Rebels thing was not just – a moniker. It was a way of life for UNLV. They they blew teams off the court with their athleticism. You know, we had not seen teams like that. Uh, and Dale Brown just kind of stared right into the shark and said, okay, you bring your best. I'm going to bring my best right at you. And it was really a classic game with the two teams just throwing haymakers at each other. No one's playing a lick of defense. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, it's a turn off the shot clock kind of game. And basically, um, Raouf carries him. He, uh, he's the best player on the floor, and it's not close. And w- once again, we're talking about a UNL- UNLV team that is loaded with NBA prospects. Um, Shaq kind of gets muscled a bit by Larry Johnson because, you know, that's what Larry Johnson does. But you really see it. Like, they go in there, and it's kind of the opposite of the Georgia game. They hit LSU hits the big free throws and it's UNLV who hits the sad three pointer as time expires to narrow the lead, even though the game's already over. And so LSU finally has its marquee win. It beats um, UNLV who at the time is the number five team in the country, but the eventual national champions. I, I mean, this is as big as wins get. And it looks like, Hey, it's all coming together. This team and you really see it next week where Dale Brown doubles down on the strategy of let's play as fast as we can when he plays uh, Paul Westfall's Loyola Marymount team. And Loyola Mar- Paul Westfall was the, the guru of go. And they were truly the first all-out fast break team nonstop. And teams were afraid to play Loyola Marymount. I mean, that's Hank Gathers, uh, Bo Kimball, just an awesome, fun team one of the most delightful teams in college basketball history. They, they blew teams off the court. They were kind of Gonzaga before Gonzaga because it's the same conference. Um, yeah, they, but teams tried to slow them down because that was – they'll be uncomfortable. And Dale Brown's like, forget it. I'm going to go at him. And for a guy who has a reputation of being bad at X's and O's, he made a lot of good X's and O's calls. Like, if you go back to 86, it's the freak defense, which – I don't think anybody else would have 
played five guards like that. Or, But he had to out of necessity. This was everyone was afraid to run against these West Coast teams, and Dale Brown wasn't. I mean, but part of good coaching is having the guys to do it. And the Loyola Marymount game was just pedal to the metal, nonstop fun. And it is still the highest scoring college basketball game. <laughs> I'm not sure ever, but I think it, at the time it was. I don't know if the record's been broken. Um, the final score is 148 to 141. It did go to overtime. Uh, LSU should have won in a regulation. They took their foot off the gas. And Loy- uh, Loyola Marymount made a late run to tie it up. LSU put it away again in overtime, but man, just it's one of those games that is still a perennial rerun classic on ESPN. So when they have nothing to play at three in the morning, there's a pretty good chance you can watch Shaq and Bo, uh, Hank Gathers running up and down the court. And also, this is a coming out party for Shaq because I think this is the game where Shaq finally becomes who he's going to be. I mean, he's not going to become a big fat guy. Um, that's, you know, still 10 or 15 years down the line. But Shaq is now throwing down triple doubles. And he – The big I'm volcano. Sure. Yeah, yeah. He's, he is staring into the volcano and he is, you know, he, you know, he is embracing his inner tiki. And this is when they become a great team. And they've now beaten UNLV. They've beaten Loyola Marymount. Uh, both nationally televised, both huge games, admittedly both at home. And it becomes part of a pretty big win streak. Um, yeah, they went seven in a row. So this team is now kind of flying into the end of the season. And then we lose to Kentucky. Stupid fucking Kentucky. <laughs> um, big Dick Rick. Yeah, Big Dick Rick. It's his first season. Um, Eddie Sutton got caught with the exploding bag of cash at, uh, I forget which airport, but it was still really fun. Um, Eddie Sutton was never allowed to coach at Kentucky again. And also, man, cheating was just better back in the eighties. Um, bags of cash exploding, uh, when it goes through the (laughs) security line at the airport, it's not Eric Dickerson's car, uh, or the gold, uh, the maroon Trans Am, the payments get taken over by SMU. That's still my favorite, but yeah. it's on the level. Um, LSU has a long history in basketball of losing to Kentucky. That's kind of, well, it's, so does everyone in the SEC. I mean, Kentucky is Kentucky. And LSU is, Dale Brown, when he arrived at LSU, he was like, we're going to beat Kentucky. We're, you know, we're going to be their equal. And that was considered insane because it was the idea that this guy could bring LSU to compete with Kentucky was just ludicrous when he first arrived on campus. And it took a while, but for about a 10 year period, LSU was Kentucky's foil. Kentucky was the better team, no question, but LSU kind of got its licks in and, you know, they would win here and there, but, Going through all of history, Bob Pettit, his team lost to Kentucky in the SEC championship game. Pete Maravich, I don't think he ever beat Kentucky. You know, you look at almost every LSU team in history, it seems 
at the end of the day, they somehow find a way to lose to Kentucky. And losing to this Kentucky team on probation, which turned out to be better than we thought because, you know, Sean Woods was probably their best player and he would end up being on that Kentucky team that would almost beat Duke. So it wasn't like they were, you know, Pelfrey, I think, is also on the team. So it wasn't like they were terrible, but they were not – they were not Kentucky. Yet still, LSU couldn't beat them. And that – I mean, just stab me in the eyes. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, it hurts. I mean, even now, it's like – and I think – They're your, they're your basketball Alabama. They are. They're our basketball Alabama. And – I think that's the seed of doubt right there. If LSU wins that game, I think LSU maybe not runs the table off for the rest of the year, but they certainly don't lose to Florida down the stretch. Just a terrible Florida team. And they probably get a better seed and they don't have to play Georgia Tech this early in the uh, in the tournament. That I don't want to say it was a crippling loss, but it's the loss where – after the, all these big wins and you're on a roll, you're winning a bunch of games, you beat two of the best programs in the country that everybody's talking about, you then still show your same old LSU. You can't beat Kentucky. And so maybe things haven't changed. And I don't know. Like sometimes you're going to overrate the emotional part of the game, but with Dale Brown, you never can because this guy was all emotion. And – they kind of limp down the stretch after that. They, you know, they go three and two, uh, three and three in their last six, and then lose in the first game in the SEC tournament because it's the SEC tournament and losing in the SEC tournament in the first round is what Dale Brown does. Like he, he had a, a long history of flaming out in the SEC. Even the '86 Final Four team, which is like the most magical team in the world, they went on these insane runs. They lost in the first round of the eighties, you know, of the SEC tournament. Like, so one last bit of motivation. Yeah, it's one. Yeah, let's like, hey, don't worry about that one. No one remembers who wins the SEC tournament. Like, that's not what you're here for. You're here to make a run in the NCAA tournament, and that's kind of uh, what sets what sets it up. LSU instead of, uh, gets a four seed, and I think. If you look historically, that's the worst seed to get if you're a good team because it means you're going to be playing a one seed pretty early. And also, you're going to play it unless there's a 5-12 upset, you're going to play a pretty dangerous team in the second round. And that's almost your equal. And that's exactly what happened. LSU blows out Villanova. Just, I don't even remember that game. It was so uninteresting. And... Actually, they don't blow them out. I look at them, they beat them by seven. But I remember that game being like this, no question, which is weird how memories work. Like you sit there and you're like, hey, yeah, we killed them. And I look at the final score, it's 70-63. So I didn't stress it. So I don't think they did either. And they go and play the Georgia Tech team. And ah, that Georgia Tech team was good. Um, I Georgia Tech uh, was runner-up in the ACC tournament. Um, they beat a lot of good teams. They, they were, um, they were a monster. Um, but also what they had is they had Dennis Scott and Kenny Anderson. I mean, it's not like this was a, 
some nothing team. So, yeah, LSU is going to lose this game, and it's going to stick in my craw for, you know, 30 years. But I don't want to ever say that Georgia Tech's like, Georgia Tech makes the Final Four. Georgia Tech is a great basketball team this year, and they almost won the ACC. They have two longtime NBA stars on it. Uh, Dennis Scott, Dennis Scott was the best player on the court, is what happened. And when LSU played that season, that didn't happen. In every game, Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf was the best player. And against Georgia Tech, he wasn't because he was sick. And what are you going to do? I mean, and here, here's the thing. History is littered with teams that were good enough to win the national title and didn't. That doesn't make you special. And that's what this LSU team is. They were a team good enough to win the national title, and they just didn't get the breaks. So whatever program you root for, you have that team in your history like that could have won. But if this happens or if this doesn't happen or this doesn't happen, but in a way, those teams are more interesting to you as a fan. And in this one, if Mahmoud Abdurov doesn't get sick, they probably beat Georgia Tech because he would have been the best player on the court. And Georgia Tech steamrolled to the rest of the, you know, the rest of the field. And they made the final four where they would play UNLV in the final four and lose the team LSU beat and UNLV win the, win the national title. Like, and also even with Raouf having a bad game, LSU almost won that game. Mo Williamson had a shot with like 10 seconds left and it rimmed out. And if it goes in, LSU survives Rauf has a week to get healthy. They come back and they storm through the rest of the tournament with that same. It's just the whole if, 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 and that's the story of this team. It's if they ever learned to play together, if Shaq had just been a little bit more developed, if they just had a senior, you know, to give them a little bit of guidance on that team, you know, if, 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 and if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. And for me, this team feels like the karmic payback for 1986 because that team had no business making the final four, just none. And they did. And it's one of the greatest memories I have as a, as a college basketball fan is that team hitting buzzer beater after buzzer beater and lucking its way into the final weekend to, you know, rub shoulders with the giants. Well, the wheel of fortune, you know, fortune, when it's going to be up, but it's going to spin back down. And 1990 is the spin back down. And LSU was better than Georgia Tech and lost. And that's what happens because sometimes the better team doesn't win. And all credit to Georgia Tech because they played their best game. And again, Dennis Scott dominated that game and he won it. But you look at that draw. LSU could have made it, and they would have. The team that Georgia Tech lost to in the Final Four was a team that LSU beat and knew they could beat. And then UNLV beats Duke by like 30 points in the championship game. Like you were talking, it's so close. And also, it was a team, again, that's still, 
that was always learning how to play together. And you figure, particularly tourney time, as runs go, they get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. And you're talking one of the greatest players in LSU history in Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf and one of the greatest basketball players of all time in Shaq and a well-rounded roster around them. This team was on the brink and it just never got there. And it hurt at the time. It hurts to talk about 30 years later, but it's fun that we still remember that team 30 years later. And in a way that's its own kind of winning. That's a very Dale Brown way of looking at things. Like you remember it because of the personalities of that team, but just to put in the knife as soon as the game ended against Georgia tech in the post game, Mahmoud Abdul-Roof declares for the NBA draft as a sophomore. And this is how rare it was back in the day. The first round of the 1990 NBA draft, only two underclassmen went in the first round and only one sophomore. That one sophomore was Mahmoud Abdul-Roof, I think the number three pick. The only other underclassman to go in the first round was a junior, Dennis Scott who went one pick after him. After that, nothing but seniors. And that's the kind of world that they lived in back then. So for a sophomore to leave right after that game and after that season, it felt like you were robbed of the future. Because you're like, oh, we lost this game and it sucks, but we'll be back next year because – Shaq will be a sophomore and he will no longer be, you know, Bambi on ice. And we're going to have Mahmoud Raouf as a junior. He's going to be the best player in college basketball. And that never happened. And then Stanley Roberts bailed out of school and he went to the NBA. And so now you're short two of your best players, two of your three best players in 90-91 when you had a team full of promise underclassmen. And it is one, it is an indescribable gut punch to have that happen when you do not, when you do not live in a world where guys go to the NBA early. Like now, if it happens, you're like, yeah, that's, you know, guys go in the NBA, whatever. It's not a big deal. But in 1990, people didn't do that. And it was shocking how quickly it fell apart. It was right on the verge. They were right on the cusp. And then a week later, it was gone. And they made the tournament the next year and, you know, they were good and Shaq was getting better. And then you have kind of a magical 91-92 season. But, I mean, they were just fouling Shaq nonstop. And, again, they make the tournament and lose to an Indiana team that would make the Final Four. And it's just like, once again, you're talking about ifs, ifs, ifs. You're like, the 91-92 team was not as good as the 89-90 team. But, again, all those other guys were now junior seniors. You know, that, that team had, you know, Mo Williamson is a senior. It has, you know, uh, Vernell Singleton is a senior. It has Shaq as a junior. And they were a better team. They, they were all better versions of themselves in 92. And they took Indiana to the limit. Actually, Indiana had to come back and win. But in 19, if you're looking at the 89-90 roster, you think that 92 team is going to be even better because you think it's going to have at least Stanley Roberts on it and maybe Mahmoud Abdul-Aruf. But 
They were gone to the wind. Do you think if, since you're doing ifs, um, if that 89-90 team, you know, makes a run to the Final Four and, you know, maybe still loses, doesn't win the national title, but they're, that's maybe a little bit more incentive to be like, let's let's run this back together and try and push for a title. Do you think it was like an early exit that they were like, uh, you know, I'm going to go do my thing? No, I, honestly, I think it was Dale Brown who pushed him. I, I don't know this. This is me talking. About, I do know that Shaq left as a junior. Uh, Shaq has pretty publicly said he wanted to come back for a senior year. And Dale Brown told him, you're going pro. Because Hackashack had reached such a point um, that in the SEC uh, tournament that year, a Tennessee player tackled Shaq in the game. And Dale Brown ran off the bench to start a fight with the player. <laughs> Good for Dale Brown. But he was just like, this is ridiculous. You're not learning anything anymore. I think Dale Brown pushed Rove to go pro. I think he said, you've learned everything you can here. You're – your job in school is to get the best job you you know is to learn things, but also to get the best job you can because I've done everything I can to teach you. Go forth to the NBA. You've learned what you need to learn, and so I, I think there was an element of him pushing him out the door. I, I don't think it was in a mean way because player that great, you don't you don't push out the door. And it's kind of a shame he's not remembered for how great he was because he didn't have that great of an NBA career. I mean, he was a a good player. He made some all-star teams, but man, in college, he was unstoppable. Uh, Just an unstoppable force of nature. But this is an era when everyone played three, four years. So only playing two years, he kind of got forgotten. And LSU only just recently retired his number. And Hmm. it's just kind of a shame that, Look, we're all talking about Shaq because Shaq is Shaq, and I get it. But if you tell me who had the better co- – even at the end where Shaq plays three years, if you tell me who was the better college player, it's Mahmoud Abdurraouf. He he was better. He's the best player I've ever seen on LSU. Uh, he was that great. Uh, it, there was nothing he couldn't do on the court. Now, Shaq's a unicorn. You know, a guy like that is just – comes around once in a generation. He, I mean, he's more of a transformative player – but when it comes to actually winning games, you know, who do I want to have the ball in their hands? You know, in the tournament, you want guard play. Guards are more valuable in NCAA basketball. So if Dale Brown were to motivate the program now instead of, like, working against every subsequent coach, um, where would he take them to motivate them or what would he say to them? I don't know. Like – he was always really good about expanding people's perspective in ways that you hadn't thought of. And it would always kind of be like a local thing or something like that. I think with a team now, I mean, I think he would do things where he would take a team down to the ninth ward in New Orleans. I mean, it's still 15 years after Katrina, but I think the players know about where they came from. And then I think he would contrast it with saying, Hey, let's, you know, you know, let's go with the the majesty of just like Louisiana itself, like how the Mississippi is being reclaimed and the southern part of Louisiana is going back into the Gulf. I, I think Dale Brown would find some sort of metaphor and, you know, the earth reclaiming the land. And, you know, it, it's the long game. I, he's just, but also the natural beauty of things where 
man thinks we control everything, but we don't. Like Mother Nature in the end wins. And so you shouldn't be so concerned about your little problems because you have no control over them. And I'm just making that up right now. But Dale Brown's the kind of guy who could make a motivation about that. Hell, he, he could probably do something about the student union. He was – I saw him speak once, and he was amazing. He just – he's a guy who just was pure energy and pure positivity. And you'd run through a brick wall for that guy. He, and even his former players, like, they all rave about him. I, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the ESPN doc with, you know, Shaq and Dale Brown. I mean, Shaq still loves Dale Brown. Uh, they're they're friends, and he's still a father figure to him. Where he's a guy that if Shaq had a problem, even in the NBA, he would go to Dale Brown. And I do think Dale Brown took personally some of the criticisms where he said he didn't develop Shaq. And he's like, "Look, I brought in Bill Walton to help coach him. You know, I, I you know I called in favors. I, I brought in one of the greatest centers of all time to help teach this guy. It's not like I didn't." do anything for him because and also i took a guy who was you know all knees and elbows and i i'm not saying i made him the best player in college basketball but he certainly taught him the fundamentals and the footwork that he needed to become a pro the one thing that always sticks out is the free throws and dale brown called rick barry because rick barry was a friend of his and was gonna teach Shaq how to do underhand free throws which would have been amazing. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he basically said, I just can't, I just can't do it. Like, it's too embarrassing for a guy to do the granny style. Even though, looking back on it, it would have transformed his career. If Shaq could sh- uh, shoot free throws like Rick Barry, if he was willing to look stupid, if he could shoot free throws at a 70, 80% rate, I mean, he'd own every scoring record in NBA history because they fouled that. I mean, they fouled the hell out of him. It wasn't like Hackashack stopped when he got to the pros. They couldn't stop him either. So Dale Brown did motivation, but I I do think he doesn't get enough credit for how much he coached him as a player. There you have it. That is the story. And these are the college basketball stories. Is it 100% accurate? Yeah, that sounds right. Follow us on Twitter at the CBB Stories. Also, see all of our inebriated storytelling podcasts as part of the Stories Podcast Network at the Stories Pods on Twitter as our guests rewrite the past across various sports. Alcoholic drinks are consumed voluntarily by our guests at their own discretion. Please drink responsibly. kind of in the background um tito horford was uh al horford's dad who played for florida um tito horford was a huge recruit in the early 80s and he originally signed with houston but his guardian signed for it and his guardian had not been properly appointed to be the guardian by tito's mom and Dale Brown realized it, hired an attorney, and sued, and had Tito Horford released from his letter of intent for an improper signature, that it was invalid. Yeah. Uh, um, Houston was not very happy with this. Um, 
for fairly obvious reasons. And it reopened his commitment, his recruiting, and it was everybody descended on this. We're talking UCLA, Kentucky, Duke. You know, they're throwing bags of cash at this guy. And he eventually signs with LSU. And Dale Brown does one of the most genius things that anyone has ever done in the lawless 80s. And I don't believe the 1980s were more lawless than other eras in college sports, but more teams got caught because I think the NCAA was at peak investigative power. So they never had the subpoena power, but they still, they could nail you to the wall in a way they just can't now. And they couldn't in the 60s and 70s. But what Dale Brown did is before he had um, Horford show up for practice or sign the letter of intent, he had him sit in the office for a deposition under oath with a stenographer. (laughs) And in that deposition, they asked him all sorts of questions, but basically it boiled down to, has LSU offered you anything to play for LSU? And did uh, they break any rules in your recruitment? And he answered no. And so from that point on, Dale Brown was essentially untouchable for the Horford recruitment because they had a legal document that was notarized of statement from the player himself that, Hey, my recruitment was on the level. And uh, basically what happened is Horford got homesick and he wasn't getting his, he was sort of the primary breadwinner for his family, which was from the Dominican and they were expecting to get payoffs and they weren't quite getting the payoffs they wanted. Not saying they weren't getting payoffs. I'm just saying they weren't getting the payoffs they wanted. So Horford injured himself falling out of bed. That's what he claimed. And then (laughs) dropped out of school and disappeared. He moved in with a friend in Washington, D.C., and no one could find him for like a month. Um, (laughs) He never played a game for LSU. And during that month, Dale Brown bent to reality, and he kicked Tito Horford off the team. Um, Horford would end up playing out his career um, at Miami. Um, but because of the Tito Horford recruitment, the NCA investigators took up off uh, office on LSU's campus. They were already investigating LSU for stuff that had happened under a previous football coach. And this gave them the green light to not just investigate LSU, but investigate everything about LSU. And they sent like their most vicious investigator and he set up an office in the LSU um, athletic department, you know, interviewed everybody. It's what led um, Dale Brown to call the NCAA investigators Gestapo bastards. (laughs) Um, Our athletic director, in order to keep tabs on the investigation, bugged his office. So he would have a recording (laughs) of all of the interviews that the investigator was making which is illegal and he would have gotten away with it too, had it not been for those crazy kids because the person (laughs) he hired to bug his office was an FBI informant. (laughs) So (laughs) he was arrested by the F he was arrested. um, And Bob Broadhead was then brought up before the grand jury um, for breaking wiretap laws. Uh, Bob Broadhead, our athletic director, who was actually only LSU's athletic director for about three years, but was wildly successful on the field, but got in a lot of trouble off of it for things like this. And uh, Broadhead 
not so quietly quit his job due to the, the wiretap uh, scandal. Arn Sparner, our football coach, who the guy who hated Dale Brown so much, angled for the AD job, and basically Dale Brown blocked him from getting the job. So Arn Sparner quit and uh, as football coach as well, took the Florida job. And that's how Dale Brown, even though he didn't become the athletic director, became the most powerful man in LSU sports. And the next athletic director was Joe Dean, who announced college basketball games and was a shoe um, salesman for Converse. So don't mess with Dale Brown. He will beat you. <laughs> but also, now we... college corruption was fun in the 80s. There was the feds. We had a federal wiretap scandal. But the NCA set up on campus for three years and investigated LSU's uh, program and came away with nothing. No violations with a carte blanche and an office on LSU's campus. Zero violations. And that did not make the NCAA happy. And they spent the next 10 years making it their personal mission to get Dale Brown. And eventually they would. But that's when we were terrible. So who cares? We, you know, we got, we got Shaq. So it worked out okay. <laughs> and we know where Will Wade got all of his tactics. That's exactly right. But once again, Will Wade doesn't have that kind of, I don't know, he doesn't have that same panache. You know? He thinks he does. He does. He, do, he thinks he does. But I don't know. Dale Brown kind of has a. And like he would let people hang himself because Dale Brown, he recorded his conversation with Horford. So that's how Bob Broadhead got the idea to wiretap his own office. But Dale Brown was part of the conversation and Horford knew it was being recorded. Broadhead did it illegally because he was, you know, recorded a conversation he wasn't part of. So he kind of suckered his AD. <laughs> God, I love Dale Brown. He's just. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dale almost taught Will how to pay people, though. So it, that at least passed away. Hey, Dale is the, we'll get it. Dale is the best at paying people. He, he figured it out. He figured the game out. He fought the NCAA and won. So. Yeah. If we actually want to talk, talk about that now, that'll get us back. I almost want to hear some of Dale post Shaq because that's where shit hit the fan, right? With yeah, all the pain. they yeah. got revenge. And honestly, like that's kind of the story of 89-90 because if you think about that team and we'll get into it, it's all freshmen and sophomores. I mean, during that season, you're thinking this team is going to be great for two or three years because this is the era before everybody goes pro early. Like Chris Jackson going pro as a sophomore was shocking at the time. Like, that didn't happen in 1990. And so, you know, you're expecting all these big things to happen. And instead, it, it unraveled quick. And, you know, then after Shaq, uh, I, I just don't think he had the – the NCA finally got him. And but what's funny about that is, like, even in the years after, Lester Oral has apologized. And he, he admitted that he set Dale up and that he lied to investigators because he told them what they wanted to tell him. And – the NCA just really, really wanted to get Dale Brown because he had shown him up. And this was in the era when the NCA was probably at the peak of its power. Like the 1980s is when, you know, they took down SMU, Memphis, 
Um, you know, they destroyed Maryland basketball for a while. Um, Illinois football. Uh, Auburn was, I mean, they almost took down Florida football, though they bounced back because of that Spurrier guy. I mean, a ton of programs went on probation in the 80s. And it's not because college sports were more corrupt in the 80s. It was that the NCAA was more capable of punishing programs in the 80s. I love Dale. Younger fans don't like Dale Brown because they know him as the guy who sab who talks shit about every coach that's come after him and it's kind of sabotaged all of them. So they all hate him. And the older guys don't really like Dale Brown because Dale Brown, well, he caused problems and he got some of our football coaches fired. And so there's only a very narrow window of people who like Dale Brown and I'm in it. An <laughs> <laughs> game. Not only was it Super Bowl Sunday, the Super Bowl was in New Orleans that day. So that felt uh, like a very, very Dale Brown. Let's have UNLV play Baton Rouge, and then down the street, well, the Super Bowl that yeah, afternoon. Let's like go it to, was, yeah, let's go like, to the it, only reason to have a game after, or you just didn't respect Florida enough. So let's play Florida Saturday. Yeah, Florida. but no, it's not even that he didn't respect Florida. It's that Dale Brown thought of things big, like he thought of marketing. Yeah, he wasn't just a coach; he was a he was the marketing director. And I mean, this is a guy who put the program on the map people did not go to lsu games before he got before they played they played in the ag center and it was a literal ag center and they started playing in the death dome you know which is now known as you know the pete maravich assembly center but he transformed this into a you know into an event which god was unfathomable when he arrived and yeah so he was always thinking of like how can i sell the program i you never when you arrive at a program that's terrible, I don't think you ever lose that chip on your shoulder and you never are satisfied. You never stop thinking, how can I sell this team? You know, you know, what do I need to do to get people? Because it, these fans are here today, but they weren't here yesterday. So I need to make sure they show up tomorrow. So he was always thinking of some gimmick. Um, I remember when I, um, before I went to school there, my, my mom and I went to a game and Shaq was out there and Mike, they had just had a new tiger born so they had a little baby tiger cub and they had it out on a leash and they wanted shack to go hold the leash and i have never quite seen on someone's face of there is no fucking way i'm getting near that thing he's <laughs> <laughs> like do you understand how much <laughs> these arms are worth i'm not getting near a tiger <laughs> it's like i love you mike but i'm not ready yeah. to end my career potentially yeah he, he was he was having, he's like this is still a tiger i don't care if it's a baby tiger still a tiger and yeah it, but he did stuff like that like dale brown just never was satisfied with where the program was and he was always even when he got it to its pinnacle i still think as much as he Love the players on this team. I mean, you know, I love, he loves all of his players. Or even your first trip, I, I think for him, if you asked him, the team that is nearest and dearest to him is 86 because that team wasn't supposed to be good. And they make the Final Four. The 90 team, preseason number two, it doesn't put it together. But at the end of the day, I can't blame him for it. I, I don't think it's his fault. Just they ran into a really good team. I mean, it's – it's not like he lost to, you know, I'd say Bucknell, but it's not like he lost to Bucknell. He didn't lose to Bradley in the first round. Like, he lost to a team that went to the Final Four itself. So that's an acceptable loss. And 
particularly in basketball, a lot of times the best player wins. And for that game, Dennis Scott was the best player. So it's a hard pill to swallow that he was the best player. But knowing that that's true, it makes that game easier to swallow. And then, and then I, I think they tried to reset it again, uh, like 93, 94. They played North Carolina. And, yeah, he was always trying to – and that's when things were starting to get bad. Um, and that's another thing. The guy just started to get bad breaks. Like, 90, you know, 93, 94, Randy Livingston was supposed to be the next Chris Jackson. And he had really, really bad knee problems. And then Ronnie Henderson got hurt. So we had these two great guards who were supposed to be the second coming. They both get hurt. And then uh, Jamie Brandon gets arrested because he, you know, was a bad person. And, you know, Clarence Caesar, who was your best player, you know, kind of falls apart. So you had this team that was supposed to be really, really good. And then just kind of everything that could go wrong did. And the program kind of petered out. And that's kind of the last days of Dale Brown. Like early in his career, everything went right. Like, you know, he would take all these wild, ridiculous gambles and they pay off. The thing about wild, ridiculous gambles is they're gambles. And sometimes they don't come up very well for you and in the end of his career they didn't pan out for him and I don't think he became a worse coach late in his career I just think luck turned on him you know he he was lucky earlier and he was unlucky late but he was still the same guy that makes any sense and and I'm not trying to say that in a way that you know luck doesn't invalidate anything it's you know luck's a part of sports and you know, as uh, Branch Rickey says, you know, luck is the residue of design. And Dale Brown's strategy was to, you know, take as many swings as he could. And towards the end, those swings just turned into strikeouts instead of home runs. I have to share this one quote from Dale Brown that. Oh, yeah. Oh, he has great quotes. Well, yeah, this was, I didn't. I knew the – I didn't realize the him and Bobby Knight thing was so – I knew they oh, met in the tournament. Oh, yeah. Um, When's the last time you shared a quote from a coach? We got oral heat, so I'm excited well, about this. There's, there's nakedness in this. <laughs> yeah. I'm... Wrestling match. <laughs> Lock your room naked and wrestle Bobby Knight. Yeah, um, if you remember Dale, uh, Bobby Knight, um, being arrested, was you know for throwing a fan in the trash can. You heard that story? <laughs> uh, that's an LSU fan. That that was an LSU fan that was uh, uh, going at him at, in Puerto Rico at the San Juan shootout, and he was arre- <laughs> not just arrested; he was convicted in absentia. Dale Brown and Bobby Knight do not like each other at all. And after um, he lost, and I think 92 in that game, I think it was uh, Bobby Knight said something along the lines. I'm going to mess this quote up, but he said, you know, we were down 10 points and, you know, Shaq was killing us and I thought we didn't have a chance, but then I looked down the bench, uh, other bench and I saw Dale Brown sitting there and I just knew we had a chance. And he was like, what a <laughs> dick. I <Man>. just... <laughs> Like they two guys could not hate each other more. And I, 
I will actually say that this is the best thing about Dale Brown. You can judge a guy not just by his allies, but by his enemies. And the fact that Dale Brown is hated by Bobby Knight makes Dale Brown A-OK in my book. That is, if someone's going to hate you, I'm glad it's Bobby Knight because he is just an unlikable, angry person. And <laughs> But great coach. And in the end, you know, Bobby Knight did get the better of Dale, but um, I'd rather have Dale Brown as my coach than Bobby Knight because one guy's more fun. But you won't win the national title. <laughs> but you win a wrestling match naked in a locker room. You will totally <laughs> win the Indy Naked wrestling match. <laughs> and also there was a big fight between the football team and the basketball team and 1990 and the legend is the the basketball team won that fight too because the football team couldn't beat anybody <laughs> <laughs> but uh dale brown uh smuggled shack off before the cops arrive so everybody got in trouble except for shack how do you smuggle shack anywhere you just <laughs> run like hell and the cops keep narrow focus <laughs> <laughs> When you, you don't see the seven, biggest when you human two, ever. Yeah. When you have two seven footers that made the NBA, you uh you probably have a good chance of winning that fight. Yeah, they, yeah. And also Stanley Roberts was a bad man. He could he could hurt you. <laughs> like, like he, he that guy had some anger in him. LSU is a weird program basketball historically. For a program that's not on the Duke UCLA Georgetown level. LSU has had more star players for a non-championship winning program. You know, you have Bob Pettit and Pete Maravich and Shaq, who are all we're all on the NBA 50 team. So that's three, not just Hall of Famers, but we're talking inner circle great hall, you know, all-time greats. And then you have Chris Jackson, you know, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, who still holds the freshman scoring record. Really, kind of your fifth guy. You know, I'm not going to say that it's him, but Ben Simmons was the number one pick. You know, you have – it's probably Rudy Mackman. It's probably our fifth best player. But if you go with your starting five, that's a starting five that can play with almost any program in the history of the sport, which is weird given the context of LSU basketball because it's not the historic player. 